Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And we're here with Robert Haar. Hi, Bob. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for joining us in the podcast. Thanks talk about for inviting me. Talk about how you met John Simon. I don't know when we first met, but I was aware of John's family because they were in the same neighborhood that my family grew up in, and they attended the same school. John and I went to the same grade school. I, a few years before him, although I think you may have overlapped with a brother or sister. Yeah, or my sure, sister. your sister. I got to know John after I finished in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I taught for a while courses at both Washington U and St. Louis U and taught a trial advocacy section at St. Louis U, and John was one of my students. So I think that's really the first time I so, got to know John. So we go way back, further back probably than anybody else. So yeah. great school, same neighborhood, good stuff. So I'm going to read you a sentence or two from the description of your law firm. Since its formation in 1997, Har and Woods has become one of the most highly regarded firms of its size in the Midwest. The firm provides sophisticated and creative representation to individual and corporate clients in complex civil and criminal matters. It has been lead counsel in some of the most prominent cases in recent Missouri history. You've represented universities and law firms, banks, major corporations, civic and religious organizations, labor unions, professional sports franchises, insurance carriers, and it goes on and on. I'm just going to start off by saying this is an amazing breadth of coverage for a law firm, but one of the, one of the key phrases that stands out to me is you say, of its size. How many are you? We're seven lawyers right now, and I've always liked small firms. Most of us have worked together for a long time. A really good group of lawyers. It's almost to the point where we don't need firm meetings. It's almost telepathic because we know how everybody mm -hmm. thinks about things. But it's a very collaborative practice. We like sitting around a table and hammering out solutions to problems and cases, I've had the benefit of having some really talented people to have those discussions with. This is my experience in organizations. Where it gets really good is where you trust each other to criticize each other's ideas when you don't like them. Oh, yeah. We're very open with each other in terms of, and that's what you want, because that's how you, or whether it's, for example, a legal argument, that's how it gets better when it's challenged. And there is no reticence in our firm to challenge somebody else's opinion on a legal issue or any other issue for that matter. So, Could you tell us how the firm evolved to cover that breadth of many types of cases? I've always said that I was concerned about saying we specialized in something for fear that would be the only thing we'd ever get. And so it, it evolves over time. And so even those clients where we have a relationship where they come back to us, it tends to be on their more unusual stuff, the things that nobody else has quite done. And I think they have the confidence in us that we'll sort it out and figure out how to handle it. And, uh, and I like the fact that we've been able to develop that reputation. And then also a, a fair amount of our practice for some years has been representing law firms and lawyers. And every time a lawyer comes to you, it tends to be in a different context in terms of the practice area and things of that nature. And so that's a challenge. But I think what the lawyers in our firm have in common 
is they enjoy the challenge of a of a of a case arising in a context they haven't seen before and sorting out the factual and legal issues unique to that situation with the benefit of the fact that obviously there's a certain commonality in all representations and you're in terms of the elements of the claim and things of that nature. I think they find it interesting to see a situation and educate themselves about a context that they haven't been involved with before. Bob, I notice, I know that you do, your firm does civil stuff and you also do some criminal stuff. Right. And both areas, you do it at the highest level. Do you start out with criminal stuff based on your well, background I, or civil I, stuff? We've always had some criminal stuff that we handled, white collar criminal from the time that I left the U.S. Attorney's Office to go into private practice it was natural. And so there was always some of that. I didn't go to college or law school here. And so a lot of the associations I had from law school were places elsewhere in the country. Suddenly they had something in St. Louis. They thought of me. And so I think some of the early civil cases I got were referrals from people I knew elsewhere in the St. Louis. And then over time, you develop relationships. Hopefully, you develop a reputation. And an awful lot of the work that I got and that we continue to get was from other lawyers, whether it's an in-house lawyer who becomes aware of us one way or another, or it's a law firm in town. And so that's how it evolved. I'm sensing that's probably your high point of having something brand new hit your desk. And it, it, you speak of it as though it's an exciting, exhilarating moment to try to figure, make sense of something. That's well, the part of the practice I enjoy the most is when you have an opportunity to just get absorbed in a particular task, writing a brief or, or preparing a matter for trial. I think what sometimes drives us crazy is all the distractions. But when you can just get absorbed in a particular task... That's, to me, the most most enjoyable part of it. And when that task is challenging, yeah, I think that uh, there are some days maybe where you would like to be a little more bored. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a couple of those recently. <laughs> yeah. but uh, but generally speaking, that's to me the enjoyable aspect of it is when you can really get absorbed in a task and feel you have the time to do something to the best of your ability. I assume it doesn't hurt your diverse practice to have a hand in both criminal and civil practice. You might have organizations that come to you and you're thinking, you've got consequences in both areas. Oh, yeah. This is the type of cases that we've had in the past with some frequency, and that's the parallel proceeding problem, where you may have a criminal investigation going on, you've got civil litigation going on, and in each context, you have to consider the implications for the other. For example, in civil litigation, and if you have a situation where there's a parallel criminal investigation, you have to ask yourself whether something you're doing in the civil litigation risks waiving the right against self-incrimination in the criminal proceeding. Those are challenging and not uncommon contexts to define yourself in because if there's something that has had some visibility some publicity, whether it's some dramatic business failure or a, maybe a, a politician who's involved in a situation, an environmental case where there may be 
regulatory investigations, there may be criminal investigations, there are civil lawsuits, there may be a lawsuit by a governmental entity such as the state, and you've got to consider what are the implications of what you do in one for the others. Could you talk a bit about sorting through in the beginning who the client is? I assume that if you represent an organization, there may be people with differing interests within the organization and one other thing while I'm at it, how do you get the attention of someone? I assume that you really need some good communication with one or more people in a big organization. Sometimes they're not so motivated to want to break away from what they're doing during the day to spend time with you. Could you talk about that, General? Yeah, although usually the problem's serious enough that you have their attention. For example, in particularly criminal investigations involving corporate activity of one type or another, it's very important to figure out who's your client. You want a clear understanding with the entity or with the person that you represent them. And there may be situations, in fact, it's not uncommon for there to be potential conflicts down the line. Maybe something that's in the best interest of the corporation is not in the best interest of one of the individual officers. And that's a situation where they're going to need separate counsel. And so sorting that out is an important part of any type of representation. Certainly, is a very prominent issue in criminal investigations, but oftentimes in in the civil context as well, because maybe there are claims against the corporation and individuals within the corporation. Then you have to sort through whether there is any potential for a conflict. You want to make sure if you're representing the organization and the individuals that there is no issue that the actions alleged against the individual were taking in the court were taken within the course and scope of that person's employment. So the corporation is going to accept responsibility for it. So you have to sort those sorts of issues out early. Let's say everybody wants you to be the attorney, but there might be some differing interests, maybe not major, perhaps minor. Is there a way for a potential client to be warned and then waive any potential conflict? Oh, sure. There are, how, how does that work? There may be a situation where there's a potential conflict where the appropriate step is to ask for a waiver, explain. You have to explain the situation to them, the potential for the conflict to get the waiver. I probably err in the direction of separate representation. I just think oftentimes, particularly if you're an early in the case, that you don't know how it's going to evolve And it's very awkward to go down the road with someone for months, them believing you're going to represent them, and then have to say, nope, a conflict's arisen and you're going to need separate representation. It happens, but I think the safer course is often to have the the separate representation established up front. What you try to do is be real attentive to the conflict issues. And the moment you feel that there's the potential, that's the time to have the discussion. Sometimes the clients are comfortable and you may obtain a written waiver, but if there's any uncertainty in their mind, you want them to have the input of an independent counsel and you will recommend to them that they consult with one. Maybe there are people that you know who are experienced in the area that you might recommend to them And in the corporation context, the corporation will more often than not be in a position to be able to indemnify them with respect to attorney's fees and things of that nature. But it's just something you monitor 
along the way and that you're attentive to. And like I said, I think we try to err on the side of separate representation if there is a concern that we think might develop into a more serious problem. Are there privilege issues that pop up among within the organizations? Oh, sure. And in some of these more complex situations, the particularly when different individuals might be represented by different counsel, you might formalize a joint defense, have a written joint defense that's not uncommon, so that you can share information that's of value to all of the clients without waiving the the attorney-client privilege. And so that's, again, something that is not uncommon in the context where you have a lot of players. For example, when you're defending a case and there may be corporations, there may be individuals, but all of the lawyers recognize that there's some value in sharing some information. You will often have a maybe an oral joint defense that'll then be formalized in a written joint defense. Can we go back to your maybe your education and your legal career? I went to Stanford University. I was the first in my family to go to college. And Are you went, the oldest, Bob, in your yeah, family? How many siblings do you have? I'm the oldest of five. Five, okay. And uh, went to Stanford, majored in electrical engineering. Then I spent uh, two years at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, and then three years at Yale Law School. After law school, I clerked for Judge Harold Leventhal, who is on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And then I clerked for William Rehnquist, who was then an associate justice on the Supreme Court. This is before he was elevated to chief. I wanted to come back to St. Louis at that point. I was gone for 12, 12 years and didn't get home very often. There wasn't much money, so some of my a number of summers the military took from me. So I didn't get home very much. I, I thought it would be interesting to see what it would be like to practice back in St. Louis and get to know my family as an adult. So when I finished clerking, the U.S. Attorney's Office in St. Louis was a small office, or certainly smaller than it is now, and they didn't have any vacancies. The Justice Department was recruiting me to go to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, which are the Attorney General's lawyers. And specifically, they were interested in my working on Goldwater versus Carter, which was a Taiwan Treaty litigation. And so I, I expressed my interest in going to St. Louis, and the Attorney General then at that time, Benjamin Civiletti, cut a deal with me that if I went to work at the Office of Legal Counsel for six months, if I still wanted to go to St. Louis, he'd transfer me to St. Louis as to the U.S. Attorney's Office, my title would actually be Special Assistant to the Attorney General until a vacancy opened. And so I went to the Justice Department. I worked there for six months, spent a lot of it writing portions of the brief in that case. And then at the end of six months, I said, I'd like to go to St. Louis. And they were good to their word. And I got transferred. And then I spent five years in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Basically, I did everything like most assistants did. And if to the extent there was something more particular, it was organized crime. We had a series of bombing cases at that time and uh, some extensive wiretaps that I was involved with and then public corruption prosecutions. And then after five years, that's when I went to work for another small firm here in St. Louis. Okay. 
And then the next stop would be your own firm in 1997 we started. Bob, what year was the were you prosecuting the bombing cases? Th- that was going on 1980 to 1985. Was that, was that, was, did those bombings take place in the 70s? They, yeah. Because they, I, I, some in the 80s, yeah. you're thinking about the, it's the leisure bombing. Yeah, right, that's, that's what I was thinking. Right. So, so uh, 70s. Yeah, there was a series of bombings and killings that, uh, that occurred, and the government, U.S. government had one of the longest electronic surveillances in U.S. history up to that point with respect to that investigation. And I was involved in that. I still remember being in a, a vault over at the FBI listening to hours and hours of, of recorded conversations. And it was one of, one of those cases was tried. Was one of them tried? Was it a... Yeah, actually, one was tried. Tom Didmeyer was the U.S. attorney, and Tom Didmeyer tried the case, and he did a terrific job. And he was the driving force behind the investigation. But I remember flying around the country, meeting with informants, some of whom were in jail, some of them were in witness protection, and it was a very prominent uh, case. Were there, I guess, I assume you're, were there any, like, risk of violence to you or your family or anything like during all of this? No, I certainly, there was concerns about violence. I still remember that when one of the witnesses was brought in front of the grand jury, that they had FBI sharpshooters on top of the federal courthouse because they were concerned about the possibility of violence. And I guess don't escort him in. (laughs) Yeah. And like I said, certainly at least one prominent witness, maybe more than one, ended up getting new identities and being relocated. Wow. I remember there was a bombing in the mansion house garage. Right. That was one of those bombings. One on 55. There was one on 55. One fif- bombing on 55. 55. There was... It happened in the... the maybe, the, maybe it was the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s? It was in the early 80s because I remember I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office and I remember getting a call. I was at a seminar or something and getting a call from Tom Didmeyer, who was the U.S. attorney, about the fact there was the bombing on 55. But there was a bombing on 55. There was the bombing in the mansion house. There was a bombing right off King's Highway in, in front of the home of one of the individuals involved. There was a shotgun assault by the Edge restaurant where... Were these all generally related? Oh, they were all related. Wow. (laughs) It was essentially a gang war. And it was going on for, went on for five, six, ten years or something? I think on for ten years, but certainly for three or four years it went on. It was, yeah, at one point St. Louis had the reputation of being the bombing capital in the U.S. Why were people killing each other. What was that statement? It was organized crime related, and it had to do with control. Whenever you look at these situations, uh, there are justifications that you can put on them. There's also an irrational element to them all, but it had to do ostensibly for control of certain labor unions. And, uh, And so what happened is you have one bombing, and then there's a retaliation for that one, and then there's a retaliation. Right. It was Once a retaliation started, cycle. Just, yeah. yeah. And so then, w- what ended it? Did they end up killing enough of each other that they were satisfied, or was it the prosecution? The prosecution. They all got arrested, and and so it was, to, to that extent, one of the most successful organized pr- crime prosecutions in the U.S. So did, it, did they have, like, a state prosecution counterpart or was it all yeah. federal? Yeah. One of the individuals that was prosecuted and convicted in the federal case received the death penalty and was executed. Court, right. Yeah, yeah. And was executed yeah. in Missouri. I imagine you probably had some witnesses who were hesitant 
to talk. What, what, tell, tell us, tell us what, understate. Tell us what. That's a fair assessment. When in order to get somebody to testify, you've got to relocate them, give them a new identity. And it's, yeah, they're hesitant. What was your toolkit for convincing people in these kind of cases to come forth and talk freely? I think part of it becomes the concern that they might be next. For example, one of the crimes that was part of this was a execution-style shooting of a young man who the FBI had we'd heard on a wiretap and had some reason to believe that maybe they thought that he was cooperating and were thinking about doing him in. And the FBI warned him. He then goes back and tells, you know, these people, oh, you know what the FBI did today? They told me that you guys might do something and everybody's laughing and everything on the tape, we have it on tape. And then they invited him along for a burglary, I think it was in St. Charles County. And as they were cutting through the farm field to get to the house, they told him they were going to burglarize, they shot him in the head. So I think what ends up happening is they start Potential witnesses start thinking, gee, maybe I'm next. And they they figure getting the protection of the federal government's better than being out there on an island and hoping for the best. I've never had the opportunity to talk to someone knowledgeable about witness relocation. Yeah. I assume that means change of name. and it, but Oh, yeah. Does it mean that you give up your family? Or could you could talk a little well, bit about it? Your family gets relocated, but I'll tell you a story about that. I was going to meet with one of the witnesses that had been put in witness protection to go over some tapes and pair them to be a witness and also to see if they could help us identify certain voices and things of that nature. This person had been relocated, and what happens is then you have to make arrangements to interview them through the U.S. Marshal Service, and and they then take them somewhere and tell you to go meet with them. And they took this individual to Miami, which I thought was a curious place to take somebody in this kind of case. But so we we met with him in in a hotel room in Miami, and we played the tapes and whatever else. And this is the first society the guy had in some period of time. And uh, so we thought at the end, and we okayed with the marshals, that we'd take him down to the, the bar in the restaurant or in the hotel so he could have a beer and relax yeah. a little bit and whatever else. There was a TV in the bar. And one of the big stories that day was, and I believe the name was Alan Dorfman. He had some clients who were associated with organized crime. He shot and killed on the streets in Chicago. And that story is going on the TV as we're here with this guy having a beer. And you're trying to sit up so you could block the television and talk louder and whatever else. I I still remember that. But uh, so was that? Had he already been placed in the Yeah, he was in witness protection. He was somewhere else. He had a different identity. And and, and we didn't know where he was because the marshal service isn't going to tell you where they are. They'll just say, if you want to meet with him, go to this town, this hotel. He has to to testify, right? There's no choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he ended up testifying. But I still remember that as being incredibly awkward. (laughs) But... Again, I assume that he and his family went on. And, when you say family, how many uh, is it? Just the like the nuclear family, or is it's 
like it's, life kit? It's, I can't remember in his case how many people were relocated, certainly he and his wife. But I, I think what happens is the government and the marshal service tries to assess who's really at risk here. And so I don't know how they draw the lines in terms of how much of the extended family that they might how, relocate. How, what's the success rate? How does it work, the protection program? does it? Ever oh, yeah. Come? I've never heard of a situation. There may well have been some, but I'm not aware of a situation where the evildoers ultimately track that person down. It's the whole nine yards, a whole not new identity. You're somebody else. They give you a new Social Security card. and Yeah. Now, I, I hear stories about after... Some periods of time, maybe some people drift away from the witness protection, obviously, if they decide at some point that they decide they don't want that protection or they believe that the risk is gone, then there's nothing to prevent them from deciding to go back from wherever they came. So I guess they have to build a whole new identity, like a whole new past with references and job references and all of that stuff. Right. Uh, and again, I don't know all the details. What we knew is they were gone and that if we wanted to meet with them, we'd have to meet someplace where the U.S. Marshals Service would tell them they'd be available for some period of time. What, but that was it. What, what are the, the taps, the wiretaps? And all I know is what I see on the, the shows on TV, but aren't there pretty significant limitations on what you can, like how long you can run the tape? And all Yeah, there, there, there are minimization requirements. You had an obligation to to minimize if, in fact, you the discussions were such that they were not relevant. And then, obviously, you would have to go back in at various points to see if the topic had changed and if, in fact, it was relevant. So, yeah, there were there, there are minimization requirements. And, and, obviously, judges, I think, take a hard look at wiretap applications because did, they're did, very intrusive. Did one judge have all the related cases or were they split up? The... One, usually one judge was overseeing the wiretaps for a related, okay. for one investigation, but there might be five or six different locations where there are wiretaps. One more question about the folks on relocation. Are they paid a stipend or do they have to go get a job now and earn their own living? once they become in the program? I'm sure that they are provided some compensation for some period of time to make the transition. But Eric, I don't know the details beyond that. Like I said, it's the U.S. Marshals. It's, it's a little bit of a black box. Yeah. Okay. So now we're in court and a juror is chosen, a yeah. potential juror. They might be reluctant. How do you convince jurors not to try to get themselves off the case? Obviously that 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 is a concern. You're seeing it now with some of these more highly publicized political cases that there's right. concerns right. about that. Fortunately, you are able to find people who are willing to serve. And, and I think the courts go out of their way to try to protect their identity and to put procedures in place to try to alleviate as much of the risk as they can. I remember a, a recent case within the last year where I think a news crew was following a juror, supposedly following a juror home or getting a license plate or something like that. And I think there was a warning, a severe warning from the court. What are the rules about when the court wants to keep these people private, the jurors, and news reporters want to figure out who's sitting on that jury? What are the rules? Yeah, I don't profess any expertise on this. And obviously, I'm pretty far removed from it now. 
But generally, it's up to the judge in consultation with the marshal service. I'm not sure there's one size that fits all. I think the judges try in each case to evaluate what are the risks and what are the ways to minimize them. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, for taking time out of your schedule to sit for two episodes. Yeah, Bob, thank you very much. This was wonderful. I'm going to, I'm going to not require, but request each of the lawyers here actually to listen to the podcast. This was great advice. Thank Uh, you. I hope that it it met your guys' expectations. And then some. It was terrific. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. See you next time.